So, in the last session, we talked about how it emerges in the Old Testament against the background of ancient Near Eastern religion that humans are not evil or corrupt in their very creation, but can, and this is a, something that has sort of in common with ancient Near Eastern religion, uh, can image God. But there's a difference. We have an emerging conflict or paradox within the Old Testament, or a point of tension at least. On the one hand, you have Genesis 1 with its seemingly universal scope. Adam, which here doesn't mean a specific man, it means human beings, male and female, as it says. All humanity as image of God. On the other hand, very particular divine representatives that you see for most of the rest of the Old Testament. So let's think about that just a little bit more. Uh, what makes the picture of all of humanity as image of God in Genesis 1 such a problem once we start to reflect on it? I think the problem is, is sin. The issue here is sin. There's no mention of sin in Genesis 1. It's a strangely sinless picture of creation. Um, sin starts to pop up in one way or another in, in, in Genesis 3. But once we introduce that concept, then the notion that all of these sinners running around doing very different things, our image of God, it starts to get uncomfortable. An image of God gets repeated in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, but you can't escape, I think, two observations. The first thing is that it has to be repeated, which means image of God is not apparent to us when we look at human beings. It's not something that I just know when I see another human body. Um, last night, late, a few of us may have told some, in a couple of cases, rather gory stories about things that can happen to human bodies. And they can be very unpleasant. And they don't scream image of God to us. Human bodies can get very gross. And so we don't know what this thing, image of God, is, just as we don't know what we are. It doesn't, it, it doesn't just communicate to itself to us automatically. And in fact, we don't know very much about the God we are supposed to be images of. This is usually the problem. Second, in light of the pervasive effect of human sin, it doesn't just corrupt our morals but darkens our minds, binds our wills, enslaves us to sin and death, corrupts our bodies and our relationship to all other creatures. It seems reasonable to say that whatever image of God is, it isn't something that sinners have much of any access to. So to say that it has been damaged or lost in some fashion sounds appropriate. Now, I think lost goes too far in a way, but only just. It comes very near the point. Well, we're going to talk some about how Martin Luther wrangles with a piece of this uh, tonight. But he says something interesting on this point. He says, after the fall, he admits that he can't find um, it, 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 this thing, image of God, is terribly unclear. 
And he looks back at sort of the previous history of, of, of church teaching on this and says, yeah, these, these are just options that get raised, but I, it is not at all clear that this thing is any of those. Um, all we seem to have after the fall is this name, this word, image of God. We are image of God in name only. And so we have this word, but nothing exactly to hang it on. That's a strange place to be. In that sense, our humanity hangs by this thread, this word once spoken about us. What else are we? Genesis 9 invokes the image of God in the context of Noah in order to protect life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made Adam. That's a warning to sinners that to attack another is to attack God's own image. That we need this reminder at all suggests the image, our humanity, has been hidden from us, obscured, maimed, damaged. This is exactly what the New Testament picks up on regarding the image of God. But just as Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament give us a tension between the universal scope and particular divine representatives, the New Testament is going to give us a kind of tension, I think a very productive one, but it's just something we have to be a little careful with, between how it describes Jesus as the image of God and how humanity in general is described as a divine image. It's by looking closely at that tension that we are, I think, going to start seeing what becoming human in Christ is all about. Now, before we look at the New Testament, there's a long tradition, which I've mentioned before, but I want to make a little more clear. It's basically as old as the New Testament itself, and it runs parallel to it, and it becomes dominant in the church by a few centuries after the New Testament was written, and it stays dominant for a very long, long time. This tradition tries to solve the problem we've been looking at by taking those two words in Genesis 1, image and likeness, and distinguishing between them in a particular way. There isn't, especially in the Hebrew, any good reason in those words to do this. There's not a grammatical or a straightforward linguistic reason to make this distinction. They seem to be thrown around as roughly synonyms. What this tradition does, it tries to find a difference in there. And the reason it tries to find a difference is, is a way of navigating this difficulty of sort of universal and particular. This is how it does it. Image becomes a baseline. This is the sort of universal truth. But it's not just a baseline, it's also an ideal. It's what we should be. Likeness gets defined as the degree to which each of us corresponds to the image. How close are we? How exactly how like God are we? How much? So it becomes a scale. If it becomes a scale, then it becomes a scale we're measured on. You can see this gets put into moral terms pretty quickly. And the better you do, the more image of God you are, and the worse you do, the less you are. There's a certain kind of limited truth in that, but it's a dangerous road to go down. For one thing, it takes something that's a pure gift of God and turns it into a law instead, a law that needs to be obeyed. Get more and more like God. This becomes then the, the way that much of the church is sort of talking about a, uh, 
The term that's used is theosis or divinization. Uh, human becoming like God. Now, if what this means is simply that at the last, we are in Christ and will be as Christ is, that's just biblical truth. Uh, the Bible really does teach that. But we have to be very wary about how we're supposed to get there. When this becomes sort of a continuous process by which we are ascending a ladder or some sort of a scale into greater and greater holiness and godlikeness, this becomes very, very dangerous, this whole way of making this distinction. Um, it creates a, a very self-serving spirituality in which I'm trying to ramp myself up into godlikeness. So I just wanted to set that out there before we begin with specific New Testament passages. Uh, and we're going to see what's actually going on here. So Romans 8, this should be the first of the New Testament passages you have. It's right after Isaiah 48. It's a couple pages in here. Familiar passage. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The image of God here is somehow just the image of the Son, specifically. Uh, this makes sense because the Son is a human being. But one more thing to note, and it jumps off the page. I mean, I put it in bold, so you, you will have noticed it. Predestination is all tied in here. That's an uncomfortable topic for a lot of Christians. Uh, that might be, sound a little strange at first, that Paul goes out of his way to wrap this up with the question of predestination. But we actually see an odd sort of parallel between this universal and particular in the question of predestination. Uh, predestination is the other place where we see this huge tension. On the one hand, God chose Israel, and he chooses sort of in his son, with a broad scope to it. On the other hand, there's the question of the predestination of individual humans, and it can't just be worked out on a wholly abstract level where, well, I suppose it's everybody or something. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's not that neat. There's a, there's a definite tension here. There are passages in the Bible which seem to point towards a universal salvation. And there are passages in the Bible which definitely point against it. So coming to a, just a too easy solution here is, is going to be a big problem. But Paul is then tying predestination, election, into this notion of the image of God. As if saying, in some sense, these are the same problem. These are the same issue. Romans 8, 
seems to read that predestination, election, is in some sense not just choosing us for salvation, but choosing us to be truly human in his son. Humanity, then, is not just a... When I say it's not a given, it's not just something that can be assumed. I mean, it's not something that can be taken for granted. Humanity itself is a gift and a divine election, a choice. It's not nothing. Um, let's go a little further with some more, some more text. Let's look at... Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. If there's a distinction there, so it was asked, it says conformed to the image of the Son, not transformed. Maybe. So if you look at some of the Pauline letters less in Romans than in, I think, especially in 2 Corinthians, you used a pile of these, but you, you, you get a lot of form language from Paul. Um, conformed. Transformed. These sorts of things show up regularly. Enough of them that if there's a distinction, I haven't been able to pick it out with any precision. Well, in Romans 12, 1, there's a distinction. Between conformed and transformed? Yes. Not conformed to the world, but be transformed. Transformed. Okay. But there is be conformed to the world. The object of the being conformed is something completely different. Um, what if it said, do not be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christ? Um... Is that completely different from saying be transformed by the renewing of your minds? Because here he does say conformed to the image of the Son. I'm not strongly inclined to say conformed and transformed are radically different. But being conformed to the Son versus the world, those are different. So being conformed to the Son looks like being, having your mind trans, transformed. I, 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 I would be inclined to say yes. Um, and not just your mind, because finally he will say actually... He's going to talk about a, a renewed body, too, isn't he? Um, a very different kind of body, which seems weird and alien and people have struggled with for a long time. Because what on earth does he mean with this idea of a spiritual body? What the heck is that? Uh, also, just somebody asked about sort of the legacy of Greek thinking and all of this. Here, Paul is definitely drawing on Greek thinking. He doesn't stumble into all of this form language accidentally. This is broadly language that comes in the Platonic tradition. And Paul's using it. That doesn't mean what he means here is what Plato would mean by it. He doesn't mean what Plato would, mean, would have meant. Um, but he's using bits and pieces of an intellectual tradition that he knows some of. Paul does that. He'll throw everything he has at the wall and see what sticks in terms of how he preaches these things. Uh, use... use Every intellectual resource he's got. Colossians. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us. There's not transformed or transferred. Moved us, translated us, put us in an entirely new location into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then we saw what he says next about this one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for in him 
All things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All of those other things that show up in Genesis 1, they're all under him. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. So he's not just like Adam, right? Adam comes into being at a specific point in creation. He's not the origin of creation. This one, who is the image of God and so is somehow also human, is the origin of creation. And therefore also the origin of Adam. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Whew. Just the beginning. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's like the first word of Genesis 1. He is the beginning. It's just like what John says, in the beginning was the word. The firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. There is a universal scope there. Paul really does say all things in that passage. So that's something we have to take seriously. Um, but it's all things as focused specifically through the blood of Jesus, without whom there is nothing at all. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, here, heaven seems to include any possibility of rebellion by other powers, doesn't it? If the sun and the moon get out of hand... Or Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a bolt of lightning. Um, wherever in creation. This is also making a clean distinction between God himself and his creation, even including heaven. God is not heaven. God is God. Heaven is a, well, we saw it in that picture, that dome separating the waters, right? We have the heavens. This is a place in the cosmos even if mostly inaccessible to us. But whatever steps out of line, in him there is reconciliation. Uh, and by making peace, let's go back to that ancient myth of Tiamat and Marduk. By the way, uh, this kind of myth of God conquering the ancient serpent, of course, shows up in the Bible. It shows up a number of places, Right? Uh, that Yahweh cuts into pieces the serpent Rahab. Shows up in the Psalms. There, there, there's bits. This, this mythology is used. But at a fundamental point, it's also rejected as inadequate. Because finally, the conquest of God isn't violent conquest at all. It is the reconciliation in the Son. By his blood. Or to put it differently, the only violence there is ours. Not God's. God does not crush evil. We inflict evil on God. And God, by that, affects the reconciliation of all things and overcomes our evil. God isn't at war with evil in the way we would think about that.
In Colossians 3, we see what's happening in Colossians 1 extended just a bit. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Is it the image of the Father or the image of the Son? It's not a clear distinction here. Um, It's the image of God. Of course, if the Son is the image of the Father, then what's the difference? In that renewal... There is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In this new self, this universal standing in the image of God is true. In the particulars of our daily lives, it often seems untrue. But here, all of the things that would divide us, that would set us at odds, that would make it problematic, in Christ, those are no longer problems. There's just, there's a whole, as Ephesians puts it, there's, there's a whole new guy. <laughs> there's just him, the firstborn from the dead. There's a new self in which we are clothed, but that self simply is Christ. First Corinthians 15 gives us an interplay between the two images, Christ and Adam. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. Notice Paul does use the word heaven in multiple senses. This is part of the problem, right? Heaven sometimes gets used to refer to what is strictly eternal, and sometimes it means a a created realm. Um, There's just an ambiguity there. You're going to have to live with it. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of of the man of heaven. This is a different way of talking about sort of loss of the divine image. As if to say, well, the problem is in this life, we are in the image of Adam. Adam. We are in the image of each other, right? As Seth is in the image of his father, Adam. I look at my little, little boy, and aside from looking kind of Korean and being rather tall for his age, which I definitely never was, um, he looks a lot like me, and he carries his body a lot like I carry mine, and he talks a lot like me. And there's no doubt about it, right? I see my own image in my son. He also reflects back to me many of the flaws that have bothered me my entire life. In some cases, intensifies them. (laughs) He's my image. Is he God's? Well, I can't see it. But as he has borne the image of his father, conveniently named Adam the man of dust. So he will also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Paul is going to do a lot of interesting things with the image of God. In Philippians 2, I don't have that down, but I could. This language of Jesus humbling himself and taking the form of a slave. Here, this is about Christ taking our form and likeness. Christ being found in, as it were, the image of Adam. Being found in human weakness and in the midst of human sin. So there's an exchange implied here. His form and ours. His life and ours. His righteousness and our sin. 
One more, 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. The first place we've had the Spirit explicitly mentioned in this context, but I don't think it's, that's what's, what's wild here. Um, it's the Spirit specific precisely as transforming us into this glory, this bodily image of God in Christ. I think I mentioned a little bit about how glory is one of these terms of bodily manifestation in the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord has a location and a palpable presence, a weight to it. There's almost a physicality to glory in the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord isn't just an idea of sort of shininess or beauty. It is presence. It is immediacy. It is God here. To where the tabernacle almost becomes God's skin as he inhabits it among his people. And here, it is precisely the glory of the Lord into which we are transformed, his own sort of bodily presence with us from one degree of glory into another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And this Pauline stuff is, is, is really interesting, and you can do a lot with it, uh, but it's a little abstracted. You have a question? Unveiled faces. Oh, oh, this is great. This is great. So remember how I mentioned, so the question is about unveiled faces. What's the context of that? Moses. Um, when I said Moses comes down from the mountain and he's shining with the glory of God. There it is, glory manifestation, right? And he wears a veil. So that people don't have to see. It's not so they don't have to see the glory. What Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians is so they don't have to see the glory passing away. They don't have to see the glory of the Lord fading from Moses. That would be disturbing. But the glory into which we are being transformed with unveiled faces is not going to be hidden from us. And it's not going to pass away. This, this veiling and unveiling begins up in this, in, this long, in this section of 2 Corinthians being very closely tied to this notion of glory and therefore to the image of God. Does that help? Okay, so what I'm going to do now is jump into places in the New Testament that don't say. I'll give you one more because somebody asked about it. Hebrews, Hebrews 1. I don't have it down there, but I'm just going to read it. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. So it's not Paul, but it uses image of God language in a slightly different vocabulary. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory, there it is again, and the exact imprint of God's very being. And that exact imprint, as far as I can tell, is just using a different Greek term to talk about image, likeness. So rather than the Greek word icon, I don't remember what, oh, oh, actually imprint is character, I think. Uh, Doesn't matter, character imprint Um, and he sustains all things by his powerful word now listen to this when he had made purification for sins a priestly action he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then it goes into a long thing for which to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Um, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels spirits in the divine service, slaves to God, sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The angels, the powers in heaven, you don't serve them. They are in God's service for your sake. And you are not created to be slaves. God is stooping down in this way to serve you. Uh, the ones who are, who are to inherit salvation, the heirs. Doesn't Jesus say almost exactly this? That the slave does not have a permanent place in the household. But the son, now that's different. So here in Hebrews, you have priesthood connected with glory and image and sonship. It's pretty good. Let's, let's go into the Gospels, though. Let's talk more about Jesus, because the Gospels don't say image of God, but they have some very interesting things to say about it nonetheless. Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went out and planned together to entrap him, Jesus, with his own words. They sent to him their disciples along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right to acknowledge another pagan lord than God, even if you don't worship him? But there's all sorts of religious implications to this question. It's not just a question about taxes or about church and state. But Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, Hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. On the next page, I have a picture of, if it's not the coin, it's probably one very like it. I mean, literally, obviously not the coin Jesus was holding. That's, that would be bizarre. But I mean, a, a lot of scholars suggest it would have been this kind of denarius. And we'll look at it. It's important to see what's on there. Whose image is this and whose inscription? Well, that's loaded. Whose image is this? Well, what's it a picture of on the next page? It's a human head, isn't it? Whose image is this? How do you answer that question? Is the image Caesar's or is the image God's? And notice, they do horribly on this. They replied, Caesar's. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Well, who does Caesar belong to? Whose image is Caesar's? Actually, it's the image of the man holding the coin and talking. <laughs> they're, they're way off. Now, when they heard this, they were stunned and they left him and went away. Well, let's look at that image again. Um, this, 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 this passage is dripping with, with implications. On one side, next to the head, reads Tiberius Caesar... Son of the divine Augustus, that is, son of God Augustus. Now, do you see whose image is this? On the other it reads side, it reads Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Who are we talking about here? 
Jesus' audience completely misses this. Completely misses this. And so misses the really deep implications of what they're saying. They're actually virtually apostatizing by giving the answer they're given. By not understanding what the image of God is, who this one who has it. Right? This is, this. They're, they're, they're utterly confused. Jesus' answer is much, much deeper than any question about taxes. It is a question about what a human being is and who God is and, 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 and how we are related. I'll give you one more. Luke 3, the genealogy of Jesus. Oh, I love this. This is, this is just great. People don't spend a lot of time in the genealogies, but they should. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began to work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matthat, son of Levi. Skip, 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 skip. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Luke doesn't hesitate to refer to Adam as son of God. And placing Jesus right within this chain, not just because he's descended from Adam, because he's actually, well, he may be descended from Adam in a way, but he's not what he's not, it, it appears. He's, 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 this is Joseph's lineage. Jesus isn't actually the son of Joseph, but that's okay. Um... But Adam here is, is put in terms of God's own image, which we know is really this Jesus. And again, there's this supposed distant gap. I think we'd be hesitant to talk about Adam as son of God most of the time. But Luke isn't. Oh, yes, there's sin, but there's no great natural gulf between God and humanity. We're not down on human beings. Again and again, we have it reinforced very clearly that humanity is created to be with God. And this is precisely the meaning of our life in Christ. God is so infinite, so transcendent, that he can be utterly close to us, closer than we are to ourselves. Let's look at another one. John 19, the crucifixion. Or the, the, well, leaning into the crucifixion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Or in the Latin, this has been traditionally translated in the West, Ecce Homo, behold the man. The human being is actually the word it's used in here. It's anthropos, it's the human being. Behold the human being. It's words of tremendous weight here. This is the human being. Pilate doesn't mean it like that, but John does. <laughs> John is always thinking on that level. So what do they do? When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. This is what sinful humanity does with the human being. As I said, on the seventh day, God rested, and we don't get an evening and morning to complete the day. We get a reference to God's work being finished back at the very start of Genesis 2, but the day isn't complete. So some early teachers in the church read John this way. And for this insight, I'm indebted to a, uh, 
an Orthodox theologian named John Baer, who I'm actually bringing to my church next month. It's going to be fun. Uh, he's a super nice guy, but he's also really, really good with these texts. It opened my eyes to some of what's going on in John. In this binder, I actually have a copy of his book on the Gospel of John. <laughs> um, Baer makes a connection between Genesis 1 and John 1. Well, that's strong. There's an easy connection between Genesis 1 and John 1, right? In the beginning was the word. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're directly parallels. But then he notes, um, what we get in this crucifixion is still connected to that. It's still connected to the creation in a very odd way. Uh, let's look at further in John 19. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, what's finished? Is this Jesus' way of saying, I'm done? What? My, the, 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 the great struggle of the crucifixion? Yes. The end of this old world, as much of the New Testament will have it? Yes. Even more than that, God's creation of the true human being? <coughs> that seems to be what's going on here. There's something very, very big happening here. That may sound far-fetched, but the crucifixion is very pointedly on the sixth day. And then the very next thing Jesus does is rest on the seventh day. He keeps the Sabbath of God unlike any other Sabbath, because there he is dead in the tomb. And then after that, early in the morning on the first day of the week, we get something entirely new, which no one has ever seen before. It's not too much to say. Indeed, it's entirely correct. I think we have to say that there is no restoration of the image of God as a patch job on the wounded old creature. There is Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. That's our image of God. Now, once you get through the... John, the Gospel of John is absolutely full of Old Testament quotations. Just packed with them. And at a certain point, they come to a stop. And that point is the crucifixion. When it's over, there are no more citations of the Old Testament. Not any longer. There are instead very subtle allusions to it in a really suggestive way. But there's no more quotations. And it starts then at the end of John 19. And, and, and we're going to see this. Now, there was a garden. Well, there's an important word. In the place where he was crucified. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation... And the tomb was nearby. They laid Jesus there. Skipping ahead a little bit. Early on the first day of the week, the first day of creation, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Skip forward a little bit. But Mary stood out weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, what is the scene? What's the image? 
What is the picture you have on the first day of the week in a brand new creation? You have a man and a woman in a garden. And this man, there's a certain ambiguity about whether he is about the gardener. Does the gardener mean the one who planted the garden or the one who was given the task of keeping it? Well, yes. So here they are. This incredible image. Really from Genesis 2. Kind of combines Genesis 1 and 2. Sitting here. To give us a picture of the resurrection. Um, there are a few other images here. Actually, when, 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 when the beloved disciple pops his head into the tomb... I'm just going to tell you this one. It doesn't have anything directly to do with it, or maybe it does. I don't know, but it's fun. He pops his head into the tomb and sees a two angels standing there in the place where Jesus had been, but he's not there. Okay? I'm going to have to draw this so you're going to get it. Now, the place where they would have laid him would have been a rectangular cutout in the rock where they lay the body. And on one side, and on the other, you have these two angels, these two divine messengers, guardians. For Jews, who knew their Old Testament, this is a picture. This is the Ark of the Covenant of the two cherubim flanking it. <laughs> and it's sitting there, again, an illusion. It's not mentioned. Nobody says Exodus and gives you a reference. There, in John, but there it is. Here is the place of the presence of God, the holy place where God's presence was among his people. And here's sort of an image of it in negative space. And then the appearance of the gardener himself. You can understand, I think, why John has to reach for stuff like this. This is too much. It's, it's almost too much to say in any other way. Something has happened that's tied together everything that's in Scripture, but is entirely new. And it concerns at its most basic level what, who he is and who we are in him. In, there was a second century Christian teacher, a man named Irenaeus, um, who does very well on this score, I think. He reads the Gospels very, very well. Well, he should. He should read the Gospel of John particularly well. Uh, Irenaeus talks about, we have his writings. Uh, he talks about how when he was young, he would listen to a man named Polycarp, who was a very early Christian teacher. And how Polycarp, when he was young, heard the message from John. That's not many steps away. That's not many steps away. From the evangelist himself to Irenaeus writing in the middle of the second century. And communicating this gospel again. And Irenaeus has a very compact way of saying it. Which is that the glory of God is a living human being. This only makes sense in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The glory of God is the living human being, the living one, the last and the living one, the one who has conquered death, the one who will die no more. And each of us in him who are his living ones and over whom death has no power. This is the glory of God. This is the presence of God. We can, in fact, read all of Jesus' miracles this way. What does he do? What does Jesus do as he walks through Galilee and Judea? He cures the sick. He casts out demons. He forgives sin. He raises the dead. One time, he even blesses a wedding. At each turn, he elevates, restores, celebrates human life, real human life, as a divine gift. He overturns every power that would turn it to any other purpose. And no matter how intense human wickedness and sin become, no matter how intense our sin, he just walks closer to us, comes further into it, until he himself is the one bearing the sins, and no one else has any. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, or as John says it, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, if he's taken it, then it's not yours. It's only his. He's the only one with any right to it. And in him, it is forgiven. This is what God has always intended. He is the creator restoring humanity to glory simply by himself being the resurrection from the dead. And he is the creature who in this world, while it yet stands, has no glory at all to look upon. But as we will see, is himself the glory of the Lord. So that's what I've got for now. Tonight we'll work out some implications. Thanks. And I should say, any, 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 any last questions? Or do you just want to let it sit there? Yes, please. <laughs> well, isn't the gardener both God and Adam? That's, I mean, this, this is the point. Who, who is the gardener in, 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 in Genesis 2? Oh, is the gardener the father? Well, I don't know. Uh, um, uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't go too precise on that. Is, is, is the, 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 the gardener... I would say at least the gardener is the son. Um, but if Adam was meant to be a gardener, then I guess, I guess it's me too. That's odd. Yes, please. Starting the garden? Yes. And these angels are sitting without a sword. Well, let's talk about, that's true. And let's, let's talk very briefly. That's, that's good. They don't have a sword. The angels don't have a sword in, um, and, 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 and they're seated. They're not, they're not guarding anything. They're not barring the way. Um, let's, let's talk a bit about cherubim, okay? So I had, I had the opportunity to be in the British Museum uh, a little while ago. Um, uh, about a month ago. And I love that place. I've only been a few times. But I always end up running to, like, their Assyrian section. Uh, because it's great. Because I want to see divine images. And they've got them. But they also have cherubim, or the Assyrian equivalent. Okay? Ancient temples had temple guardians. What do they look like? 
Maybe they could be in human form. Often in the ancient pictures, like the really old ones, they were only partially human, right? You get these big sphinx-like things. They're guardians of divine presence. There's the human heads, lion bodies, wings. were terrifying, and they're enormous. I don't know what the ones in the temple, in the first temple, looked like um, when there was an ark. But they were, they were flanked by it. But of course, they become, in, in the course of, of, of Judaism, they become human, humanized figures. Angels become more human in form. Um, to the point where you get confusion about whether Jesus is just one of the angels. That happens in Hebrews, right? And Hebrews is very pointed about saying, no, 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 there's a big, big difference. The angels are servants. This is the son. Um, but yeah, right. They're not doing anything vile. They're not guarding the way. They're sharing good news. That's fascinating. I had one more question. <laughs> uh, what do we, what do we have? I got seven minutes. Excellent. Yes. Okay. So I am going to dip you very briefly into the one of the most controversial episodes in the history of Lutheran theology, which is an internal dispute in the 16th century between students of Melanchthon and Luther over the image of God and what the human being is after the fall and the free will and all of these things. You get a debate between two men, Victor and Striegel, who sides more with Melanchthon on this, and this is after Luther's death, and Matthias Flacius Illyricus. Isn't that a great name? Illyricus means he was from Croatia. Matija Vlacek is probably how he actually said his name. Um, he's a Croatian guy who made his way up to Germany and managed to make everyone in Germany angry at him at one point or another. Hugely important uh, reformer, actually. But he was bad at making friends. He was very bad at making friends. Nevertheless, he's some of the most faithful to, to, to Luther's teaching. And Flacius gets himself into a big trouble. People are horrified when he says this. This can't be right. When he says, after the fall, the human being really is imago satani, image of Satan. It's not terrifying. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Is he saying it's totally gone? And Shriegel wants to say, no, there's this little bit of like free will or something that can choose good. Inflation is you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Um... I think the point really is that you kind of are what you worship. That you are what you serve under. That he, I, think, I think Flacius actually understood how image of God works really, really well. And if image of God is us manifesting, is in a specific way, us sort of manifesting the creator to one another and to creation, this kind of mediation, then those who are under the dominion of the evil one become images of the evil one. And isn't this what we find in all of our false worship? Isn't this what we find in all of our idolatry? That we twist this around into something horrifying, into a diabolical mockery of what God has made. All the more important that Jesus forgives and restores those who are under the dominion of the devil. Um, we had a conversation last night briefly on atonement theories. This is the right way to use sort of a Christus Victor kind of atonement without throwing out, you know, 
the blood of Jesus on the cross is forgiving sins. Here they fit together. And here it absolutely must be said that there is a deliverance from the power of the devil. So that that is not who we image any longer. That language of image of, 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 of Satan isn't used in the New Testament. Luther did use it at one point. As, as his student learned this lesson. Uh, and it's controversial. But I think it's interesting and it's at least a somewhat helpful way of describing how twisted this can become. Where it becomes almost exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Right? That's the nature of sin. It's not just a little bit off. We don't love as well as we should. Right? Our faith isn't exactly what it should be. Oh, that would be so nice if it were only that. It's instead that we take the good gifts of the creator and we call them evil. And by calling them evil, we call him evil. And we set ourselves in just flat opposition to him and to who he is. Well, who is the opponent? Who is the slanderer? Who is the enemy? This isn't a stretch at all. Anyway, that's, that's what I can do with that. It's the best I can do that. Yes? There is, there is a hint of it in the New Testament because Jesus responds to the Pharisees by calling them the, the, yes. the father. Yes! Yes! We are children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone, right? No child of Abraham was ever a slave. <laughs> it's like, you are, right? You are children of your father, the devil. It's such a Right. Right. Yes. Uh, yes, okay, let's, it's, let's good, let's go into this, let's go into this, because this is a word, servant or slave, or the same word, and you're right to point out, so the passage is, remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant, my servant, I have made you, you are my servant, Israel, I will not forget you, I have. so when I say we're not slaves, let's, I have to qualify that here, because here it sounds like saying, Israel, Jacob is a slave, but let's be very careful with what this actually says. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Okay, so uh, you're, you're, you're of course right that the Hebrew is like the Arabic here. The Hebrew word for slave is ebed. Uh, and the Arabic is, yeah, it's, it's the same old Semitic root, which makes sense. Um, I have made you, you are my servant. Or you won't say slave. Israel, I will not forget you. Is that a thing you say to a slave? I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Redemption is purchase. That's what you do when buying someone freedom. Do you see? You are my servant. And because you're my servant, that means you're free from everything else. And I haven't made you what to feed me. To work for me? Oh, no, 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 no. I have set you free. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? Um, you are heirs, inheritors. <laughs> yes, the, to be the servant of the Lord here is to be his heir. Proof? There in Isaiah, this mysterious figure, Jesus, who is the servant, the slave of Yahweh. Well, who is he? He's the son himself. <laughs> this is nothing like what it is to be a slave of the gods in the surrounding religions. This is exactly the opposite. Picks up the same language and turns it upside down. Yes, one last question. 
How do I know when I'm seeing the image of God in my children? Likewise, how do I know when I'm seeing it in myself? How do I know when I'm seeing it in anybody? I think what I'm arguing here is that as sinners, we don't see it. We only hear it. I don't see the forgiveness of my sins, generally speaking, but I hear it, and I need to trust that word because it's true. Um, I don't see Jesus' body and blood, but I hear his words. I don't see the resurrection of the dead around me. I proclaim the resurrection of the dead every time I bury somebody. And you know what? This is really frustrating as a preacher. That every time I proclaim the resurrection and then I put somebody in the ground, they don't sit back up again. What I see is death and the reign of hell. What I preach is the everlasting life of the Son. What we hear is the truth. So where we're going to get in the final session is we're really going to be talking about preaching this to one another. That's where I want to go with this. The answer is that these are words you're going to need to learn to give to your children. And that other people are going to need to learn to give to you. Because you're not going to believe them unless you hear them. You're not going to be able to look around and just see this. Oh, sometimes I think my son is wonderful. Sometimes he doesn't seem wonderful to me. Um, But he's much better than wonderful. And I can't know that by looking at him ever. Not what he really is. Not what he is to his father and him. Anyway. Thanks.